Podcast One. Imagine if your business was named best in the world by your industry's leading authority. That's pretty good, right? Now imagine if that happened two years running. Well, this did happen to past guest and Four Pillars Gin founder Stu Greger, who rejoins us to share exactly what he and his team are getting so very right. It's a slightly tipsy episode 538 of the 12-year-old award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. Well, I say welcome to a small business marketing show where successful small business owners share their souls to take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Tim Welcome back to your weekly dose of distilled marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You, infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner who is well and truly ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. If you haven't subscribed, I suggest you do because then you'll be one of the cool kids on the block who never misses another episode. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Now, Four Pillars Gin creator Stu Greger first joined us on this podcast way back in 2017. Back then, his luxury gin brand was going okay, but was definitely in a growing phase. Today, things are a little bit different for young Stu, with Four Pillars having been named the best gin in the world two years running at London's International Wine and Spirits Awards. It's what the, it is the like most prestigious awards if you are the maker of grog of some sort. Now, what's interesting about Stu is that before launching Four Pillars, he owned a marketing agency specialising in promoting premium wines, spirits, beers, all those kind of brands. Then one day, One day, he challenged himself to see if the advice he gave others would actually work if he created a product. It did, and the rest is history. Now, Stu's also president of the Australian Distillers Association. He's on the board of the food rescue charity Oz Harvest. He's a busy guy, and he has got so much marketing gold to share. It's ridiculous. So pour yourself a cheeky G&T, make it a double, then sit back as Stu shares the key business and marketing moves that have led to some enormous success over the past couple of years. I started off by acting dumb and asking Stu if all gins are created equal. <laughs> no, of course all gins aren't created equal. Otherwise, we'd, we'd still be drinking Gordons, wouldn't we? <laughs> you know, there are, not that there's anything wrong with a Gordons, but uh, no, look, you know, I think gin has gone through a massive renaissance and a massive boom over, over the last five or ten years. It's, it's been huge. You know, it, when, when we started making gin in 2013, we reckon there were not ten people seriously making gin in Australia. There's now more than 200 distilleries making gin in Australia. And to give you an idea of the... The category growth in 2015, a guy from Dan Murphy's told me this the other day, in 2015, vodka outsold gin four to one, and in 2020, it's neck and neck. And that's all gin growth. That's not vodka going backwards. That's just gin. People love what's, the- what, why is it. What's happened? Why has it taken this long for a wonderful drink like gin to find its place in the sun? I think because, so a couple of things I reckon. First of all, the, the growth in, in 
cocktails, right? So if you go back a decade, you know, in Australia, there weren't many cocktail bars to speak of. You know, there were a couple in Melbourne, there may be one or two decent ones in Sydney, but, you know, we were still a sort of a beer and wine um, market, I guess. And then with this new growth in small bars in particular, where, you know, there was a cocktail bartender and he liked, you know, he cared about his drinks and he wanted to put good ingredients in it rather than just something that you would have got in the pub. So he went looking for interesting spirits. And when he went looking for interesting spirits, he found great gins because gins, you know, still the base of those great, you know, if you're going to make a Negroni or a Martini or you're going to make a Southside or you're going to make a London Calling, whatever, so many great drinks are based on gin. So he thought, or he or she thought, well, I better better go and find some interesting gins to make my my cocktails better than those that are, you know, up the road or around the corner. And that's when gin, people started rediscovering how beautiful it was, all this beautiful, you know, the juniper. And also I think it's all these local botanicals that we can use, all these flavours that exist in Australia that don't exist in the UK or don't exist in the US or anywhere else. So for us it was, um, you know, people are discovering, people care a little bit more about what they're drinking because they're drinking less but they're pretty keen to drink better. Um, and that's where Four Pillars is kind of, uh, we've been lucky to hit a bit of a niche there where people go, right, I'm prepared to pay a couple of bucks extra for my my cocktail or my gin and tonic or whatever it might be because I know it's going to taste a little bit better. I'm going to use better tonic as well. You know, there's been a huge growth in, in the tonic category as well. When we first spoke a few years ago, Stu, and you were talking about, because you, you own a beverage marketing agency and you wanted to prove your worth to see whether what the advice you were giving <laughs> your clients actually, you know, you could do with your own product. And I think at the time, you it was before Fever Tree Tonic, maybe had come to market in Australia, you, you were tossing up between going with a tonic or yeah. going with a gin. Did you yeah, make the right decision? <laughs> well, not if you look at the performance of Fever Tree on the stock exchange. I mean, they were the number one performing stock on the secondary market in London maybe last year or the year before. I mean, you know, it's now the Fever Tree Championship, you know, the, the Queen's Club tournament, you know, the tennis tournament before Wimbledon is now the Fever Tree Championship. They've gone incredibly well. They've made a lot of money and they make a great product and they're really good guys and they're, they're, a, they're a good business and we, we love Fever Tree. I just don't understand the economics of all that. It's a friggin' tonic water and it's now a billion dollar brand. And yep. like, what did you say? It outperformed everything on the London Stock yep. Exchange. It's sponsoring the bloody coins. Like, how does that how does that work? It's outselling Schweppes in Australia. And if you think about it, there was only one tonic in Australia up until five years ago. Like, it was just Schweppes. Schweppes in Indian tonic water. Yeah, correct. It, it, it works for a couple of reasons. One is it's good product and it's really well marketed. They've got excellent distribution. They don't, you know, they got the pricing right. I mean, they've got all those elements of the marketing mix that, you know, you guys talk about all the time. Um, they got it right. And they invested in, first and foremost, getting... A suite of different, they did a, something a bit similar to us, which is they said that not everyone's going to love the same flavour, right? So you just think about tonic. Tonic was Schweppes Indian tonic water. Now, if you didn't like that exact flavour, then you didn't like gin and tonic, right? Because that was the only ingredient, that was the only other ingredient yeah, the other that ingredient. You, you're going to have in it. And they said, right, well, we'll make some tonics that like Mediterranean tonic that aren't quite as bitter. We'll make ones that have got sort of elderflower in them or a little bit more floral. And all of a sudden, or we'll make ones with a lemon, which is basically just bitter lemon, Mm. but we'll call it lemon tonic so people can say that they'll have a gin and tonic rather than have a gin and bitter lemon, if you know what I'm saying. So they just, they did really clever things. They made the product really good. You know, they relentlessly pursued a strategy of making sure that they partnered with the best gin brands. So as soon as someone like Four Pillars came along, 
You know, we were we were like, well, what tonics are we going to use with four pillars? You know, Fever Tree was there immediately saying, use us, use us. We'll give you a good price. We'll make sure that we partner with you. We'll share. So, just explain that. How do you partner with a tonic water? You're a gin manufacturer or creator. Yep. How do you partner yep. with a tonic water brand? Well, if you think about it, so we've got a big distillery in uh, Hillsville in the Yarra Valley, and we've also got a bar now in in Surrey Hills in in the city. Opened up in the middle of COVID, but that's a discussion for around the corner. Opened up, uh, opened up in June, but every single gin and tonic we sell at our distillery goes with, out with a Fever Tree Mediterranean tonic. Now, I'm talking maybe 100,000 little bottles of Fever Tree Mediterranean go out every year with one of our gin and tonics. Now, that means that if people like Four Pillars and they go, Four Pillars is a premium brand, oh, look what they serve it with. They serve it with Fever Tree. When I go home, I better have mine with Fever Tree. You know, I'm not going to have mine with Schweppes or whatever else it is. So, it's a pretty simple way to, to piggyback, I suppose, on really good Brands and you know the gin and tonic is a pretty simple drink. You know, it's, <laughs> gin is tonic. It's one third gin and <laughs> two thirds tonic. So you might as well get from. I understand them right. yours is two thirds gin and one third tonic, but uh, this is yeah. a personal <laughs> preference. I do tell people it's not called a tonic and gin. <laughs> it's called a gin and tonic. So I think that the the primary component of it ought to always be gin. Stu, let's talk about great product. You have incredibly won the International Wine and Spirit Award for Four Pillars Gin two years in a row. Uh, It's a fairly prestigious award. I did a bit of a Google search and there are the World Gin Awards, but that, I don't know, between you and I, that website looks a bit dodgy. The uh, International Wine and Spirit Award uh, looks much more prestigious. How much, so first of all, congratulations on winning that two years in a row. Best gin in the world. I mean, how many gins are there in the world? How much of that success is due to a great product versus all the other variables like marketing to help you get there? The answer is, you know, and I, I remember saying this last time, is you've got to get all the elements right, but you've got to start with the product, right? First of all, you can't even get... So the answer first, uh, how many other gins were entered? Thousands is the answer. Is the International Wine and Spirits competition the most prestigious in the world? Yeah, it is. It's been going 51 years. Some of these other awards have been, you know, up for two or three years because all of a sudden if everyone's into gin, everyone wants to run an award, whether it's, whether it's a, you know, the... The, the Indian Gin Awards, the Australian Gin Awards, the New Zealand Gin Awards, the International Global Gin and Tonic Awards. You know, there's a million awards that have popped up over the last 10 years because a lot of people are, you know, trading on the success of the category. But the IWSC has been there in London for over 50 years and judging great wines and great spirits. And, you know, whether we were making rum or gin or, or, or whiskey, we would want to win the International Producer of the Year. You know, whether we were American making bourbon or we were a, a rum producer from the Caribbean. I mean, I know... I know some great rum brands that have won that as well, and they still consider that to be the highest accolade that they could have. They could have won. That's in Florida Cano. It's a beautiful rum from Nicaragua. Is it a blind test, or is it like he, yeah. it is? Yeah. So what what happens is so it's it's a little bit opaque when it comes to who wins the actual big award, which is the the producer of the year. But basically, you've got to you you enter your gins, and your gins have to perform incredibly well to be in the final four within the category, right? Which means that if there was a thousand different gin distilleries entering, and there's probably more to be honest, and we would have entered, let's say we entered four or five gins, two of our gins won gold medals and three of our gins won high silvers, which means they just missed by one point out of a hundred from winning a gold medal. So we almost won five gold medals out of five entries. You're like, the, you're, like the, you're like the Michael Phelps of the Phelps, gin world. I just, we just felt short of Phelpsy. Um, <laughs> so we actually looked at it and went, shit, we've done really well here. Our suite of gins that entered went better than last year. And we went, shit, and we won the big award last year. So then we ended up getting into the top four, which meant that there was us, there was a Japanese distillery, uh, Spanish, 
Swedish and and sort of one who's a bit of a hybrid of a, of a British distillery. And we thought, crikey, we we got to have a good chance here. And then they look at the four finalists and they go, right, well, which one is the producer of the year? Which one has not only done well in the competition but has done well for the category? And that means, you know, what have they done from innovation? What have they done from promotion, marketing, sales, you know, all that sort of stuff. Okay, I just want to ask a question there. Yep. So just a question. So up until a point, it is a blind test. Yep. They're trying for what all intents and purposes looks like yep. straight gin Correct. in a glass. Uh, and then it gets shortlisted down to, I think you might four, have said four. Correct. At that point, it's revealed that, oh, that's the four pillars. And then the judges can go, oh, geez, love the design, love the bottle, love the marketing, love the partnerships. They, they can start to factor yeah, that that's in. what we think. So basically the, the gold medal itself comes from a blind tasting, as it does in any any proper show anywhere in the, in the world. Once they get the shortlist of the final four, then we're not really, we, I don't really honestly know how they choose us to be the International Gin Producer of the Year. Who bloody cares would be my <laughs> kind of reaction to that. Couldn't agree do, more. <laughs> do, do you, in order to um, submit the actual gin, the 50 mil of gin or whatever it is that you're giving each judge, do you just pull out a bottle from a box or like how do you choose which gin to actually give them? Well, we gave them five Five different gins. So, you know, we make a rare dry gin, which is sort of a, a modern Australian-style gin. We make an olive leaf gin that's got sort of olive oil. We, we put the bloody Shiraz gin in, which is a gin infused with Shiraz for the first time ever. We don't normally enter that in shows because it's not really a category for gins flavoured with Shiraz grapes. But there was sort of a, a flavoured gin category or an infused gin category. So we thought, oh, well, we'll enter that and see how it goes. And it won a gold medal. So that was probably the one that got us over the line, to be honest. Um, yeah, you just send them your best... Samples, and I mean, if it, if it's in the UK, you'll probably send them direct from the distillery because you don't want them having sat on a uh, on a ship for six months, and you don't want them sitting in a warehouse in London for longer than you care. So you'll send them direct from the distillery. You'll DHL them over there, and it, obviously you'll put your best foot forward. You won't, you know. I mean, the the gins themselves are pretty consistent, but you won't. You you make sure you send the best you can. I obviously weren't there uh, during these COVID times to receive the award. Uh, was it televised? Tell us about the cel- celebrations that in- ensued. Yeah, it was it was on uh, YouTube premiere, so it wasn't quite <laughs> as flash as it was last <laughs> year, which was a black tie dinner at the Guild Hall in London with you know lords and ladies and all, all manner of fancy fancy people. And Cameron got to go, so my partner founder co-founder Cameron, so Matt Cam and I started the business up together, and um, Cam got to go last year, so I was going to get to go this year um, and obviously oh, I didn't get to go geez. anywhere. So I woke up at 5 o'clock. It was on 5 a.m. Australian time so we were in um, we were in the bar in Surrey Hills and all the guys at the distillery in Hillsville were there as well and <laughs> yeah, by 5.15 we were on the champagne and by 7.30 we were well on the way. <laughs> <laughs> so Stu, what does an award like that really mean for business. And I'm, I dig deep in this. I mean, it's good for business. I get it. You can put your gold medals on the bottle. Don't know whether you do that, but, yeah, you know. probably not. Well, okay, why? Uh, and then follow up, what impact? Can you quantify what it's done to the Four Pillars business? Look, it, you can't quantify it yet. I mean, you know, it happened end of November and we're... Well, you won last year. We're early December. We won last year as well. Yeah, so you can... What does it do? It gives you an... Um, it gives you a bit of credibility, and I actually think winning it a second time has has actually probably going to impact the business more than the first one because I think the first one draws a few people attention to you. But there's, you know, I, I often you know look at it in a sporting sense. You know, the, there's a lot of people who might have fluked a big tennis tournament or a golf t- victory or something like that or a premiership. 
But if you win it a second time, you really frank the form. You really you you go into that sort of world class. Oh, he's a uh, two time US Masters winner, or he's, he's won a back to back premiership, or he's won a couple of US. You know, a, you haven't a just done of, a, Steve a couple Bradbury. of Wimbledon's. You haven't just yeah, you haven't just fluked one. So I reckon the second one actually will be more important for us. It gets you, all your distributors around the world excited because they now realise that they're representing one of the best gins in the world. So, you know, you, there's a confidence of selling that makes a big difference for both both within Australia and um, right across the world. It does draw attention to some buyers, you know. So, you know, we've just, we've just had a bit of success in the UK prior to this, but this has certainly helped us, uh, you know, getting into Waitrose and getting to Marks and Spencer and those sorts of places that... Um, they like to think that they have world-beating gins in their portfolio, you know, that are on the shelves. It makes it easier for them to sell if they can tell their customers, hey, P.S., we've just taken on the world's best gin. You know, it's now on the shelves at Marks & Spencer. These awards, really, and I'm talking generally, not just the awards that you've won, but they're, they're fantastic for your business-to-business relationships, your supply yep. relationships, your partner relationships, your media relationships, that type yep. of stuff. Yep. You said you're not putting the gold medals on the bottle. I know you are a brand management uh, Nazi, you know, like you, and I want to talk about that later on, but is there, is there a reason for not putting the, the medals? They detract from the beautiful design. They do. And, but I mean, we will have it, we will have reference to the, the, to the awards on the side of the bottle, but what we won't do is what are some wine businesses do where they plaster dozens of gold medals across the front. And really it detracts, I think from, I've always had a bit of an issue with it because what happens next year if you don't win the 17 gold medals, you know, mm. you can't, you know, it makes that vintage look a bit less good than the previous one. So we'll certainly reference it on the side of our labels. We think that the labels and the brand should stand for themselves. You know, it's not, it's great to win these awards, don't get me wrong. And I mean, you know, even doing, having a chat like this or doing a bunch of media or podcasts that I've been doing over the last three weeks, you know, that has been to the great advantage of the business and we've only probably had probably two-thirds of them have happened because someone has seen a media release or someone has seen some reference to us winning this award. So it is, you know, it, it does help us from a media perspective. It helps us from a profile perspective, PR, marketing, all that sort of stuff. It also helps enormously with your own, with your own people, right? I, I think you can never underestimate the pride that people who work in a business have and the extra effort they'll put in when they realise that the business they're working in is the world's best, and it also doesn't hurt. I mean, if you if you're trying to attract the cal- the right the, the caliber of people, I reckon two years ago, if we were talking, you know, saying, "Oh, look, we're a little Aussie startup gin business," you know, we really want to go and get the best people, whether they're distillers or hospitality, or they're brand marketers, or they're just uh, or they're sales guys. They probably would have gone, "Oh, yeah, you know, I'd rather go and work for one of the big companies, yeah. you know, Diageo or Pernod Ricard or something like that." But now they're looking at this business, going, "Shit, those guys have won those two big awards. They seem pretty fair income." And they're pretty close to the business. You know, it's a smaller business than it is going for a, uh, going to work for a multinational. I'll give them a crack. And the other thing is it keeps your investors happy. You know, at the end of the day, you know, a year and a half ago, we had a, you know, we, we got a, a reasonable, you know, 50% of our business was bought by Lion, which is part of Kirin, you know, which is a huge Japanese global drinks giant. I, I think it, you know, when I said it franks the form, I think it makes them feel like they may have invested made in a right good decision. business. Yeah. They may have right, made the right decision. And that's important in business to f- have having backed yourself, uh, thinking that you backed the right horse. How's that gone? Uh, I didn't realise you'd sold 50% to Lion. I spoke to Jamie Cook from Stone and Wood a few months ago uh, and he was talking about the fact that they haven't sold out. In fact, no, he, even, he, he yeah. even struggled actually 
wanting to sell to, into Dan Murphy's, which he had in, in the end had to capitulate and well and truly in Dan Murphy's. In fact, I saw a bloody stone and wood big billboard on a bus yesterday. So he's sort of selling out a little bit, but what he's opted to do is create a pretty effective um, employee profit share scheme yep. and all sorts of things like that. And, you know, those Byron Bay folk, um, you know, Stu, they, they, they're a bit precious. They don't like selling out <laughs> too much. You're, you're, you're obviously of a different mindset, which is, you're, you're, you're wanting to build an empire. Is that fair? Well, I don't know about an empire. I just... I, don't I, be we, humble. You're not <laughs> humble. Was, there were certain things that we needed, one of which was we needed to get our, our distribution right. And Lion has one of the probably, I think, the best distribution network in Australia, not just from their beer, but they have great relationships with people. They've got great relationships with the on-trade and the off-trade. And we knew that if we went in with Lion, with a business that has a great... You know, they've got a, a pretty good understanding of the craft beer scene... We were going in to be their first big play in spirits, so we weren't going to be the, the sixth most important spirit in their portfolio. You know, we weren't just going to fold into Diageo, who also happened to own Gordon's and Tanqueray and Bundy and Bailey's, and we, we would have just been, a, you know, a, a second-tier brand for them, if you like. So we were, we were reasonably strategic in the sort of, in who was interested in it, because there was a few people who were interested in looking at taking a small bit of the business. Um and and it is just a different route to the to the stone and wood guys. They're great mates of ours. You know, we know Jamie and Brad and those guys really really well. And the beer market, it's it's a funny one. The beer market, there's the you know, if you look at Bolter, which is up on the Gold Coast, Bolter sold into CUB, but uh, Stone and Wood decided not to. It's just a, it's what you want to do with your life and your business. I mean, everyone makes different choices and everyone has different motivations. But I do think it is. I mean, just talk. I met Jamie a few times now, and he's worked for Lion Nathan. He's been well, CUB you know, actually. Was it CUB? Yeah, he was in the CUB side. Okay. Yeah. So he's worked for the big corporates. He's over that game. In fact, his business, all his business partners were the same, except the bloke who owns the pub down in Byron Bay. And they just wanted to get out. And I suppose they've just looked at each other and gone, geez, you know, we run the risk of getting back into where we came from. We don't want to do that anymore. Uh, you're a bit different. You've come from running your own business, your own beverage marketing agency and maybe you do, may, may, maybe you have dreams of that mahogany, you know, corner office, mate, you know? No, Jesus <laughs> Christ, no. Like I'll never, I'll never end up working for the the big business. I'll, I'll you know, we, we're, we're really happy with our 50% share with them. They are a great partner. We have a quarterly board meeting and, and, and not much else to do with them other than a big bit of a boozy night last night, to be perfectly honest, down here in Sydney. Um and, you know, Cookie, Jamie and Brad and those guys are doing fantastic stuff at, at, at Stone and Wood. And it's just about what your, what your motivations are and, and, and what direction you want to take. And I think from our point of view, we also had a different, we had a bunch of investors who were mates and, you know, they put some money in and one day would have hoped to have got some back, but they weren't all employees. Some of them were just friends who, who put a bit of, bit of cash in. So we had to consider them as much as us. And... To be honest, if we continue on the way we're going with Lion at the moment, I've got no qualms about sticking around for as long as they'll have me. I mean, the, the, the likelihood is they'll want to get rid of me before I want to, <laughs> I want to park, park the combi on the side of the road and go surfing. But um, it's a really different world. I, I, I'm just finding it really interesting and really exciting. It may not last, may not last forever, but we'll see. Let's talk about brand. We, we touched on it last time. You're a big proponent of building great brands. There's a lot of small business owners listening to this, Stu, that probably don't 
grasp the concept of brand, who may think that it's actually not that important. Shouldn't we just be out there selling? What's your view on brand? How do you define brand? And how have you created such an incredibly strong and consistent brand? I mean, see, the first thing I think is brand is everything. It's everything that we are, everything that we do, and you can't separate it from the product and you can't separate it from selling and you can't you can't sort of compartmentalise it into, well, that's a bit of marketing and that's a bit of brand and that's actually production. It's all the same. Like every single thing we do is about the brand four pillars. Every single time someone comes into our distillery or meets one of our sales guys or comes into our office or goes in the bar in Sydney or buys a bottle off the shelf at Dan Murphy's, every single one of those interactions is is them choosing our brand, right? So them showing some form of bias towards us over someone else because there are no shortage of other gins that they might be buying. There are no shortage of other bars that they could be going to in Sydney. There's no shortage of other places they could go to in Hillsville or the Yarra Valley or outside of Melbourne. And each time that they make a small decision about whether or not they're going to have a Four Pillars gin and tonic rather than a Hendrix or rather than a, a Bombay Sapphire or, 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 or a beer or a wine or a whiskey, they're making a not, not always unconscious, but they're making a sort of a, a small conscious decision to be biased towards four pillars. And what we talk about in our business is how do we build that bias? How do we get people to say, I love four pillars more than just because it's a nice gin. I love it because of the brand. It stands for something. They're good people. They make lovely stuff. They're always trying interesting things. I, I like their bars. I like the way they talk to people when they're out in the in the trade. I like the way, that, you know, it's, it, it, the brand is actually everything. And if if some elements of your brand don't stack up, then people are too well-informed, well-engaged and well, these days, well-connected that they can pick a fake, right? And they'll be able to say, you know, they'll be able to share on, you know, I, I thought Four Pillars was all about sustainability and good people doing the right thing and everything else. And I went up to their place in Hillsville and it was bullshit. You know, they were fakes. They, they, they weren't very sincere. They were just trying to get us in and flog booze to us. Nah, it's not for me. And we're going to make sure that every single touch point, I don't want to, touch point's a bit of a wanky, wanky word. No, it's, I get it, I get it. It has to be authentic and it has to be great. If we come across as guys who are a bit disingenuous or, or, or we come across as people who aren't really in it for the love of the, of, of the product and we don't really care that much, maybe we're just slick sales guys trying to make a quid flogging it to the to a beer business. So, Stu, I love that. What you said, how do we build that bias is an awesome question that every business owner should ask. Do you want to move on from brand? But before we do, how, what do you say to the accountant or the chiropractor or the restaurateur or whoever else is listening to this who just haven't got their brand right. They've got, you know, if I was to be so superficial as to say there's a different font in five different touch points, there's four different treatments of the logo, the the language they use in their marketing copy is boring, it's formal, it's inconsistent. Like, what? where can they start to get it to a place like Four Pillars have got their brand? Well, look, we're lucky. I mean, we got a, you know, first of all, we got a bloke like Matt Jones in our business who's, you know, he's... He, Globally, I'd say he's one of the great, you know, one of the best brand strategists in the, in the in the business. I've got a bit nice. of I've got a bit of a background in it as well. Find someone who knows a bit about it, but don't believe that your brand is just the font on your website or just the words on your business card. Right, it's everything you do. And if I look at my dentist, the brand is the greeting I get when I walk into that dental surgery. No one wants to be in that dental surgery particularly, but I always get such a lovely, friendly smile. I get some. I, I don't get that old, gruff, 
dental surgery meanness that, you know, you don't want to go there anyway, but at least if I'm going there, I'm having a pleasant enough experience and that I, or that, you know, they're, they're clearly on brand in that they, they try to engage with you, they try to chat with you, even though you've got your mouth full of, you know, cotton wool and you can't say anything. <laughs> they've, got, they've got the TV screen when you lie back so you can watch the ABC News, that sort of stuff, little things like that that just say we care a bit more about our customer, we care a bit more about customer service than the guy who's the, dental, the dentist down the street. That's the same as your accountant. You know, if your accountant doesn't answer your emails or if your accountant is a bit sloppy and slow and makes spelling mistakes when they're emailing you, you start to question whether or not they're going to be that good at their own job. And that's all brand. If they send you a nice Christmas card or if they go out of their way to say thank you when you've, when you've done something, you know, all those little elements build up into bias because we could all go and find an alternative to them, right? We can all go and find an alternative to our car or our or our mobile phone or our gin or anything else. But we choose not to if we have an unconscious or a semi-conscious bias towards that brand. You know, I go, I don't know why, but I like Adidas shoes yeah. more than Nike. Yeah, it is a bit like that for the consumer. It's like, I don't know why. They don't, in fact, they don't even say that to themselves. They just make a decision to buy something and, and all, behind them is all this weird marketing stuff going on. In fact, I've got a guy coming on talking about brand, the subconscious things that marketers do uh, as they rub, sit around the boardroom table and rub their hands together as a, in a kind of, yeah, <laughs> we're going to get it's some It's much less uh, science See, I'm, I'll always rail against the people who say that it's all these, you know, that there are all these crazy scientific ways that you can get I, people. I agree. I, I, yeah. I'm actually much more human than that. And I just say you don't want to let people down. You don't want to piss people off. You want to do things that are honest and good and delicious and you're fair income. And uh, it's, it's much less complicated. There's a lot of bullshit artists in marketing and there's a lot of bullshit spoken about the science of marketing and I reckon most of it's mumbo-jumbo, mate. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, no, that's great, mate. Well, hopefully, hopefully Adam Ferry uh, will tell you something different, but you know, true. <laughs> but but fortunately, this podcast being eleven years old, I think we've managed to avoid the science of marketing and focus more on the heart and soul of marketing, which it should be, you know. Um, so, okay, on the point of marketing, brand is clearly your point of difference, and you've done an incredible job. But I walk into Dan Murphy's, and for overseas listeners, Dan Murphy's is the biggest wine retailer in Australia. I walk into Dan Murphy's, and these days. The gin category in Dan's is friggin' huge. Yep. It's an aisle, you know, and, and for Australia, that's that's big. I mean, America is probably like bloody 10 aisles. It's probably Dan Murphy's just for gin. I don't know. But there's all these gins and they're all in beautiful bottles and they, they every different one sings to you. And I love gin and Sarah, my girlfriend, loves gin. So we, can, we do stand in front of the gin aisle and it's like kind of, you know, it's a little bit like soft porn in a way, <laughs> if I can say that. Um, you have built a great brand. You don't do... TV, radio, billboard. You know, you've got no above the line advertising that I, that I certainly see. I'm not seeing you come across my socials a lot in terms of remarketing. So why is someone buying Four Pillars who is just your average Joe in the street? There's a bunch of different ways, uh, right? So if you're not coming across our socials, you should be if you're in the category. We've got, so let's start with, we've got 100,000 people follow us on Insta and we've got about, about the same in Facebook. So that's a good I, I social media. I follow you, media. but it's not remarketing yeah. me. No, 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 but we don't tend to, we don't, we don't want to pester you. You, know, you don't ah. want a brand that keeps, keeps annoying your inbox. You know what? You might be listening to a podcast. You might have heard me being interviewed on seven o two yesterday morning. You might have heard, you might have seen a little. We do, we'll do a little street poster in some cool areas where we'll just do something that's cool. You might have seen us in a bar. You might have had the guy at Dan Murphy's who we invest time and effort into teaching about our gin. He might have said, oh, "You're standing there in front of that, you know, in front of that uh, 
wall of gin and the guy from Dan, and you go to the guy from Dan Murphy's, mate, I cannot make my mind up here. And he goes, well, honestly, the Four Pillars is the best one. Right? That guy has been that, to Four that's Pillars. That's happened to me. That's happened to me. Yeah. And we put a lot of effort into every one of those guys at Dan Murphy's as much as, as all the other ind- independent retailers because we care about them recommending it. You may have gone to a bar and looked at the same thing and said to a guy, mate, I just want a good gin and tonic. And he goes, well, you, you better try this Four Pillars gin and tonic. It's great. I've just been to their distillery and they're really good guys and they're making the best gin in the world. And P.S. did you hear they won this big award last week? All of that yeah. stuff, this hand-to-hand marketing combat that happens not just here, but it happens in New Zealand and Vietnam and England and, and all of the other markets where we where we exist and we have a sales rep on the road. You know, we got a girl whose job in the UK is just basically go to every Waitrose and Marks and Spencer and talk to the staff on the floor there Wow. Telling the staff why they should be buying four pillars, right? And that's marketing. Yeah. That's brand. Sure is because they're sitting there going, "Well, why would I? Why would someone come into a into a retailer in you know West Cumbria and buy an Australian gin? <laughs> you know, there's plenty of local pommy gins here, and it's because well, because it's the best in Australia. It's it's great price. It's got this Shiraz flavour one, and you've got an Aussie cousin. You know, so you better buy it for them for Christmas. So I love it, mate. What you are doing, you are rolling the sleeves up. I've always defined, one of my favourite definitions of marketing has been, it's what you do when you can't go and see someone. So if you can't go and see someone, you kind of try and personalise your marketing and speak to them in a conversational tone that resonates with the people who you want to buy your product. You're actually going to speak to people. You are actually sending people out and speaking to influencers Yep. in their place of work. So forget social media. It's, it's impressive. It's a roll-up-the-sleeves, slow-burn strategy, I guess. It always has been. And I think, you know, it's been more difficult this year than any year in history because we, you know, my job for the last five years in Four Pillars has been going around the world and around to every, you know, every event. You know, we do more events than other people where people can come and drink our gym. We do more dinners. We do more tastings. We do all of that sort of stuff. But this year it's been a massive handbrake of being put on that for everywhere. You know, I haven't I haven't been to Queensland this year. You know, normally I would be up there and, you know, talking to the local the, the liquor store owners and doing bartender events mm-hmm. and masterclasses and all that sort of stuff. We haven't done anything. So we've done more Zoom events than anyone this year. We've done more podcasts than anyone this year. We've been doing as much as we possibly can to get, you know, we were sending personal, I'll give you one example, right? So our guy in, in the US said, uh, we need to get into some of these big retailers because America's had a huge shift in the way they buy booze post-coronavirus, right? A lot... A lot of businesses like ours really just relied on the bars of the US to sell our gins. All the bars in the US have gone through incredible difficulty this year. We need to get into these big box retailers, but big box retailers don't buy little, small, craft Australian gin. They buy Grey Goose and they buy Bombay Sapphire and they buy, you know, they buy Tito's Vodka and all that sort of stuff. So we spent days just making individual video messages personalised Hey, Dave, it's Stu here from Four Pillars in Australia, mate. We just reckon you might love our gin. Alex, who's our bloke in the US, is going to be sending you a care package. One day you're going to come to Australia. We know it's not going to be this year. Good on you, mate. Speak to you soon. And we just did over and over and over and over and over again for all of the, all of the retailers across the US. And, it's, it, it, you know, we only needed one, maybe two of those to get us further in front than the guy who's doing it from a New Zealand gin or the guy who's doing it from an Indian gin or another pommy gin or whatever else it is. And, and it looks like we might be having, you know, a small bit of success over there. So it's doing that sort of stuff. I mean, the number of times I've been up this year at five o'clock in the morning doing Zoom tastings for retailers in the UK or late nights doing it for the guys in the US or whatever, that's what you've got to keep doing, mate, because 
what I said to someone the other day who said, well, what's the key to the success of business and everything? It's because all of a sudden you're a bloody business guru because you <laughs> yeah, win a few yeah, awards, yeah. you know, as if, I, as if I'm that. I said, it's just you've got to be relentless. If I could define success in business in one single word, it would be relentless. You can't just pull back. You can't say, right, I'm there now. Look at us. We've won a famous couple of awards. You know, the world will just come to us because, mate, there's 500 distilleries in in Australia and New Zealand alone who are all looking at four pillars saying, how can we pinch their market share? How can we take take from them? So if we're not going at it harder, faster, better, smarter than the rest of them, they will take it. Gee, mate, they're relentless. I, I'm writing notes like... You've got a quote book. You've got to publish a quote book, free with every bottle of four pillars. Relentless. Is other ways, Stu, that you and your team are relentless in business? Yeah, I, I mean, we are every day. You know, I, I was I was with the bar guys yesterday. So we've got this little bar in Sydney now, um, you know, seats about sort of 60, 70 people. Drinks and it's Lab. A brand. Yeah, the Drinks Lab in Surrey Hill. So it's a brand experience, but it's also just a fun bar to go to and have a cocktail or a beer or a wine on a Thursday afternoon. And it's also got a still there where we also teach people a bit about gin and how to make cocktails and how to, how to drink better at home, that sort of stuff. And I was just sitting with the three guys who, who, who run it and saying to them, how are we going to make the experience better next week than it was last week? Like, what are we going to do in the bar? What are those tiny little percent things that we're going to do in the bar? You know, are we going to offer them, you know, how do, how do we make that drink just a little bit better? How do we make the customer experience a little bit better? You know, how do we make sure that every single time that a punter comes in and, you know, I've got this thing about, you know, every time I see a handbag on the floor, like I'm, I, I, we had to have racks under the bar, yeah, but not, no. not racks, you know, ho- hooks. hooks under the bar because I've always hated w- when, when people have to have their handbags, girls particularly have to have their handbags hanging off the back of a bar stool. So we put these and, I, and I, I, I get infuriated when someone walks into the bar, they put the handbag on the floor and like why didn't the bartender tell them that there was a hook there? You know, that, that, that could have improved their experience by 1%. But they would have said, oh, that's nice, thanks very much, mate. Oh, there's a hook there, I don't have to get my... Balenciaga bag dirty by sitting on our scruffy floor. So it's just little things like that. How do we make it better each time? Because you can't rest on your laurels. You can't think, oh, yeah, we're going great. You've got to relentlessly pursue that little bit of getting better. It's like a footy coach, man. You know, my, I love sport and I love, I love watching, you know, Hardwick and the, and the guys at Richmond and you can just watch them have to get better. You know that at the end of the season you could sit back and say, well, we've just won three out of four premierships. How good are we? But they've got to sit back and go, right, how can we be 6% better next year? Because everyone's going to be coming at us next year. Every day, in every way, we've got to get better and better. The Drinks Lab, Stu, you opened up, you opened up in June 2020, possibly yeah, great idea. one of the worst <laughs> months of the worst years of our lives. Uh, clearly, that was something that was in the planning and the train had you know, built up enough head of steam that you couldn't stop it, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, correct. W- what was your thinking behind the Drinks Lab? And then how did COVID affect it? I, I, I tell you what I was thinking. When I heard you'd open the drinks, I'm like, it's a nice idea. Clearly the boys have built up a bit of dough so they can afford to open a bar in Sydney. That's got a bit of cachet about it. Is it another revenue stream or does it actually play a big, has it, has it actually have a positive impact on the brand nationally and internationally? Well, look, it doesn't have a positive impact on it internationally yet because it was intended to, which was that we were going to be bringing lots of people over from around the world who might be customers of ours or bartenders, show them the drinks lab. The, the, the lab was a, was a simple concept in that we always wanted to have the distillery in Hillsville in the Yarra Valley, right? That's where we make the gin. And then we wanted to have somewhere in Sydney where we show people how to make the drinks, 
right? Not not the gins themselves, but make the drinks, right? So teach them how to uh, how to make great gin and tonics or great cocktails or martinis or Negronis or whatever the hell it was. And that was we always wanted to do that in Sydney because one of the things we we wanted was to be able to bring. We were finding that we were bringing lots of of our customers or our distributors or wholesalers. We're bringing them out to Australia. They were going to Hillsville, Melbourne. They were seeing the distillery. They were going out in Melbourne. And they all wanted to come to Sydney, obviously. And they basically went on a bridge climb and we took them out to a few pubs. And I thought, wow, we're missing an opportunity here of being able to show them something that's great that we do that is uniquely four pillars in Sydney. So we'd always love this this particular site in Surrey Hills. You know, it was 18 months in development. And then obviously the world, you know, cacked itself in March. We were probably three quarters of the way through the build. I mean, it's a pretty beautiful bar. It's a beautiful building. You know, we wanted to make it like a genuine world-class experience from just, even if you weren't there to learn about Four Pillars, you were just there to go and have a drink with a few mates after work on a Thursday. We just wanted you to have a great experience. And, you know, for that reason, you know, there's always tins of beer, there's always wine. You know, I love it when someone comes in and there's two of them are having a fancy cocktail and then one guy just goes, mate, I can't have a beer, can I? (laughs) Yeah, of course you can, (laughs) mate. That's me. Yeah, mate, there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, life, there's too many boring rules in life. One yeah. of them shouldn't be that you have to drink gin to go to this bar. Yeah. Mate, if you want to, you want a can of Furfy, mate, it's, it's, don't worry about it. So for us, it, it, it serves a dual purpose, right, which is the brand. Like you can go there, you can experience Four Pillars, you can have Four Pillars in the best cocktails we think that use our ingredients that exist in, in, in Australia. You can also just go there and have a good rollicking time. You can have a jaffle, a beer, a couple of gin and tonics, a and then, and then uh, yeah, yeah, the best jaffles in town. Baked beans? Know? No baked beans. No, we've got sort of, yeah, you know, it's fancy. You know, it's, it's mortadella with it's basically ham and cheese, but you yeah, know, it's called yeah. something much yeah. fancier. Mortadella than that. and provinciano, yeah. mortadella <laughs> and, and provolone. I think <laughs> yeah, it is actually, right. to be honest, with a with a with an olive tapenade. But uh, it's, a, it's a ham and cheese jaffle. Did someone say um, wanker? He's, he's here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, Stu, back to you. <laughs> There's uh, so it is. I mean, and, and, and we've also got a little still there, so we can actually show people how to make the gin, which we do. You know, every couple of Saturdays, Wes and I, because um, this is one of the things about this year. You know, like I never made the gin. I was always the guy who was just the talk, the mouthpiece for the gin business, right? And and Cameron and the distilling team in Hillsville made the gin, but we put this still in in June, the second week of June. All of a sudden, no one could come up from Hillsville to make the gins because the idea yeah. was every couple of weeks we'd bring up one of the distillers. They could have a weekend in Sydney, have a bit of fun, make some gin, do it as a class. All of a sudden, no one was here. So I was like, well, shit, maybe I should learn. You know, that's one of the great things about business and, and uh, is that you can continually push yourself and evolve into learning new things. And so I started helping Wes, uh, who's one of the boys who actually came up from Hillsville and he's ended up obviously staying in Sydney because he wasn't able to go back. Um, but he wanted to stay in Sydney anyway. And we just thought, um, well, why, why don't we learn how to make gin together? And, we're, you know, it's a great, fun experience to come and watch us make make a gin on a Saturday morning. You know, it takes a few hours. We make a few bottles. We have a couple of tastings. We tell some Four Pillars stories. And hopefully the person who finishes that goes, well, I'm a little bit more biased to Four Pillars now because I've, I've I've met the guys, I've I've seen how they make their gin. You know, they're pretty open and transparent about what, how they do stuff. That's going to be my brand now. Like you might have Adidas shoes, or you might like particular, you know, a sunglass. You know, you might like Ray Bans more than Oakleys, or whatever. So that's just that's what the Sydney Lab does. But it still hasn't even come close to fulfilling what our dream was for it, which was to bring a lot of people from around the world who are great 
bartenders and great customers, really get in with them and, and, and get them to show us what they can do with our gins as well. See, it's B2B again. All you're thinking, it's, it's quite, it's genius. <laughs> it's B2B. I mean, yeah, you're always there to service the customer. I get that, you know. Give Joe Public the best gin going around. But all these plays, like the awards and the gin lab, it's about making sure that the retailer, the great cocktail bar, people of the world, they are the ones who are across the Four Pillars brand. Even if you remember when we spoke three, well, three or four, however many years ago, was, yeah, you know, I always used to talk ago. about influencing the influencers, you know, and finding those hundred people who are the keys to your business and making sure that they love you because they're going to fall in love with someone else, but they also are going to fall in love. Someone else has got a bigger budget than you, right? We're, we're not the big budget play in, you know, we're not Hendrix and we're not Bombay Sapphire, but we can be a bit more real and we can have a bit more fun and we can make sure our booze is better than. We had Seth Godin on the show a few months ago. Jeez, and I, big two, well, up until today, name. mate. Yeah. Hey, up until today, <laughs> Stu Gregor. Hello. Stu Gregor and Seth Godin. I'll take that. <laughs> but, and I keep quoting these two things he said about this topic. One was you only need to, every small business needs to matter to a thousand people. Yep. Not 5,000, not a hundred thousand, not a million, not everyone. And the other thing is his wife, whether you know it or not, owns the most popular gluten-free bakery in New York. And he's quite around, and I said, why? Why is it so popular? He has no, he has no impact on the marketing. I don't, I'm not sure I believe that, but he said he doesn't get involved. And he said, it's not for everyone, but it might just be for you, mm. you know? And that was his take on that. And I just think, again, there's such learning there to, to, you know, we're not here to appeal to everyone and, you know, yeah. we just need to matter to a select few. And you've, you've got it down to a hundred. A hundred key people. Probably more than a hundred now. But <laughs> well, I'll yeah, take, yeah, yeah, I'll get take Seth's thousand. <laughs> but, it's, um, but it is true. You, we're not going to convert everyone in Australia into a lover of four pillars. I mean, mo- half of them aren't even going to like gin. So, and half of them are going it, to, it's not for them. But we have to matter. I, I love that. We have to matter to the people who matter, if you like. Yes. And if, yes. if, if we matter to them, you, you're still certainly not guaranteed of success, but you're putting yourself in the game, if you like. And if you're in the game, then it's up to your, your training and it's up to your people and it's up to how well you how skilled you are and it's also up to how determined you are. You know, a lot of people in business just are simply not determined enough. That goes back to that relentlessness. It's just a bit too hard. And if, if you're not super determined, it's like the kids who have got skills in football or sport, but they just don't have the determination that some of the other kids have. Um, I think that's one thing that we've got in our business. And I actually sometimes talk about Cameron because, you know, Cameron, who's, who's a co-founder, he was an Olympic athlete. He ran in the 4 by 400 at the, the Atlanta Olympics. And the determination that you must have to have to be a, you know, a, a middle-class white guy running 400 metres in Australia and, you know, and, and to think, well, I'm never going to be the world's best, but I'm going to make the goddamn Olympic Games. The level of determination you have to have. And athletics training is not fun. It's not fun like footy training. It's just, it's a slog. It's relentlessly running lap after lap after lap and drill after drill to try to shave off one hundredth of a second. It requires a special person. In fact, it's funny you mention that. I've got the, the guest that I have coming into the studio after we wrap up. He has a business called Cheese Therapy. He's kind of, um, he's trying to rescue the artisan cheese industry of Australia. And um, he is an English Channel swimmer. And my, one of my first questions will be around, 
that mindset that you have around swimming the English Channel, not only just during the year, but he's done it in winter, although he didn't finish in winter, but he had a crack at it, like that must have a positive impact. So the lesson here is employ Olympians or elite athletes as business partners and you can't go wrong. Well, you, you probably can because, <laughs> you know, they might have a bit too much chlorine in their heads or something like that. But but what you do get from sport, and I've always had, you know, I'm obsessed with sport. I, I, I love it because I love watching the, you, you, just, just the effort and the brilliance of, of, of elite sport. I can watch any sport. I don't care what it is. But it's also the, but the people behind it and the coaches behind it. There's so much wisdom amongst gruff 60-year-old coaches. I mean, you know, even Wayne Bennett, who just makes you, you just, oh, God, I hate Wayne Bennett. Everyone, you know, every, every, any New South Wales Explain, explain <laughs> Wayne Bennett. Oh, Wayne Bennett. Probably the greatest rugby league coach of the last 40 years. I mean, he's coached yeah. all the great Broncos teams. He just coached Queensland, some fluke win over New South Wales in the last origin, but don't start me on that. But <laughs> his ability to get the best out of kids and the best out of, you know, and I see some of the American football coaches that I really, I'm really obsessed with seeing how they can... You know, they can get young talent to focus, you know, particularly young young men are by their definition not well. I've got a son, you know, a teenage son. They're not well, um, they're, not, they're not good at focusing on anything. <laughs> they're not well. <laughs> nah, nah. They're, they're quite hopeless, actually. I've got two as well and, and, you know, honestly, I don't know how they get by. I don't know how any of us no, got through and our teenage just years. Young, the just truth. coaching and, and mentoring, getting them to... To, to be their best, I, just, I think one of the most interesting things in business, and, and again, it comes back to marketing and brand, is your ability to get the best out of the people you work with. I was talking to someone this morning and all I said was, all you've got to do, and this is our marketing director, I said, all you've got to do is find really good people to come around you. She's like, oh, I'm a bit overwhelmed with everything that's going on at the moment. I said, don't worry about it. Find better people around you and it will be okay because the, if, if we can build a better team, we will be a better business, we'll be a better brand, and we will continue to succeed. Surround yourself with great people. Stu, um, it has been a tough year. Uh, we're coming to the end of it. We're having this chat in December 2020. Um, COVID's impacted everyone. How has COVID impacted Four Pillars for the worse and for the better? Well, the, I think the first one for the worse is that one of the, the fastest growing parts of our business in 2019 was a thing called global travel retail, which is basically duty-free. Duty-free and spirits in Australia is a huge part of the business. You know, everyone in Australia, when they're travelling overseas, takes two bottles of spirits away with them and then buys two bottles when they come back in. I mean, that's pretty much universal and it's a huge part of the business. It was heading towards 15% of our business. It's now exactly zero. So that's a, that's a big hole. So you can make that up with, you know, a bit of Waitrose. You can make it up with a bit of Dan Murphy's or direct sales on your website, but that's a big hole to fill. So that was the, that was the biggest single impact of COVID was was our duty-free market. And it, and it doesn't look like it's going to come back anytime soon because business travellers just do not look like they're going to be going in anywhere near the numbers that they would have done in 2019 until at least 2024. So that's a, you know, we're, we're a long way behind there. I think in the terms of what was good, we had a crazy sort of six or eight weeks. It feels like a years ago now where we all, we just flipped everything into making hand sanitizer, and it was <laughs> right. phenomenal. We made was tens it? of thousands of litres of hand sanitizer in the space of six weeks. And profit-wise, I mean, it just kept the wheels turning. When things were going absolutely cack-eyed, like so all the bars were closing around the world, um, you know, some countries were even closing their retail, the travel retail market was going down. Going down. We managed to make hand sanitizer for frontline health workers, for Australia Post, you know, for all manner of people across was Australia. Was it under the Four Pillars brand? 
Oh yeah, well, sort of loosely, but we, we you have to be very careful when you're making. You don't want people drinking. Well, you don't exactly. You can't have the brand looking like oh, it's just another you know another SKU in the in the gin business. It's also you know it was also eighty <laughs> percent alcohol. So I mean you know it was not something you wanted yeah, to be drinking. Right. Um, that was a really great year, and I think the other thing that we've learned is what we as a business, but not just us as a business, what we as a people are capable of, and adapting to when things don't go our way. I just have been so impressed with how the Australian community is adapted, whether it be Melbourne. I mean, you know, and it's it's adapting today. You know, all of a sudden we're looking at cases popping up in, in Sydney and yes. everything again once we, after we'd thought that we had, you know, maybe eradicated coronavirus. Mm. But it really, I, I think it's shown how resilient people are and also, you know, particularly the guys in Victoria because they've had a much tougher time than we have. I'm sitting here in Sydney. You know, they've had a really tough time and their lockdown was pretty fierce over, you know, sort of six months, better part of six months. So, mm. um, and I think good will come of it. You know, I think next year you can, you have to look at 2021 and say, right, well, it's going to be better than 2020. Can't be much worse. Well, well, hopefully. I mean, what's going to change? The date. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it looks like we're all going to get immunised sometime next year if we're, if, we're, if we're up for that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think, we, you know, if we might start travelling again. I mean, I had a I, – yesterday I had an international trip put into my diary for March next year. I mean, it's New Zealand, so it's not oh, – wow. you know. <laughs> But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seventh, seventh state of Australia. But that was, an exciting, that was an exciting day. moment for me. I thought, <laughs> last year, <laughs> 2018, I wouldn't have been that excited about going to New Zealand. Although I do, I, I, that's a lie. I bloody love going to New Zealand. But that was a big moment, thinking that there may be some travel again to, to the Kiwis next year. So, yeah. Here's a ridiculous question, Stu. You might know the answer to it, but it's just, it's bothered me and perplexed me for the last, since March. What impact has coronavirus, you probably don't know this, had on the sales of Corona beer? Do, do you know? Have you heard anything in the trade? Uh, I, I read something about it. So it's owned by Constellation Brands in the US and I know Corona, um, it impacted them in early doors. I'm going to say that I don't reckon it's been good for that brand. I would agree. There were a few people, if you remember, right back, and this happened, I know it happened in Sydney, there was a there was someone who took the piss a little bit and had a coronavirus, you know, buy a four-pack of corona and avoid the virus, and they got absolutely mm, slammed smashed. across every everything. So I feel like it's it hasn't been great for the brand. I hope it hasn't impacted the brand hugely because, you know, it's a very famous and important Mexican beer brand. They did. It is. Yeah. Mexico also, Mexico had some really strong lockdowns. In fact, at one stage they weren't even allowed brew beer. So they may have had a, they've, they've had a, a problem probably with supply as well. Mm. But in an Australian context, it's hard to see because Corona is a unique beer in that it is exclusively summer beer. Mm. You don't drink Corona until the weather gets hot, right? Until you're sitting out in a beer garden in a, in a, in a bucket. So Corona's market really started last week. So it'll be interesting yeah, to see true. how it goes. So, yeah, yeah, fair point. Stu, a great story, mate. I could talk to you forever. I think the last time we spoke, <laughs> I said you should write a book. You definitely must write a book, even if it's just a book of quotes, mate. You know, it's it's <laughs> tremendous. Uh, and what a great story. So well done, buddy, on, on where you've got it to. I look forward to getting you back on, I don't know, maybe after next year's International Wine and Spirit <laughs> Awards. See if you can go, what do they call it, the three-peat? Mate, if we get the three-peat, yeah, we'll, I'm in. I'll, I'll be back. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Awesome, buddy. Uh, that was Stu Greger. Fourpillarsgin.com is where you can find the most beautiful looking product. I mean, just from a marketing branding point of view, go and have a look at it, even if you don't like gin, but buy a bottle and you might just come around to it. Stu, thanks, buddy. All the best. Thanks, Tim. See you in Queensland sometime soon.
Well, there you go, team. Four Pillars gin founder, Stu Gregor. Now, if you ever wondered how to be a guest on a podcast, a great guest on a podcast, I would recommend studying Stu because he is just the guest that keeps on giving. Now, here's my top three attention grabbers from that chat. And believe me, it wasn't easy getting it down to three. The guy's a marketing ninja. Attention grabber number one. I love the way Stu views marketing as hand-to-hand combat. You know, like getting out on the ground and speaking with influencers at a retail level, like cocktail barmen and retail reps at liquor stores, that's just pure genius. It's roll the sleeves up, hand-to-hand combat marketing, and I love it. Attention grabber number two. Building on that, Stu's idea to send personalised video messages directly from the boss to retailers across America is also genius. Like how many bosses would actually go to the trouble of creating a little amateur video on their smartphone and sending it out to people that matter. You might think, oh, geez, that waters down my brand. What about, you know, creative production values and all that kind of stuff? Honestly, guys, just do it. Put your head above the trench and get noticed. Attention grabber number three. I love Stu's attitude of being relentless and super determined in all aspects of business. I especially love that question he asks each week about, and I quote, how do we make the four pillars experience better this week than it was last week? End quote. I encourage you to ask that question of your business. Don't talk about four pillars in the question. Replace it with your brand name and I reckon you'll get some pretty funky responses. Make sure you apply them when you do. That's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, please hit pause now and tell me by calling the Small Business Big Marketing hotline on 0480 015150. Just like Shelley did. Hi, Timbo. It's Shelley from Lake of Pet Training in Melbourne. Uh, we launched, launched our business with puppy school dog training classes and in-home privates in late 2019, only to have the wind completely taken out of our sales due to COVID, of course. And with the second lockdown in Melbourne, it's been almost like we've started the business over again three times in about 12 months. I know there's lots of other new businesses that had a similar experience. It's been really hard. Anyway, me and my team are going to take ourselves on a little self-directed business and marketing retreat um, where we're doing lots of business planning and planning out our marketing moving forward. So we've got about three hours in the car to reach our wonderful uh, retreat destination. So I wanted to ask you what three episodes of the Small Business Big Marketing Show um, do you reckon we should binge in the car to inspire us to pump out some great marketing and build our business into the empire that it deserves to be? Anyway, thanks, mate. Shelley from Lake of Pet Training. Bye. Oh, Shelley, I do love it when a listener mirrors the language that I use on this podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, More importantly, a big well done to you for taking your team away on a planning session. I think every business owner should do that. Uh, I don't know whether you've listened to the episode with lawyer Joe Oakey. Uh, It was about a couple of months ago. She takes her team away. In fact, recently she took her team away and asked the question, put it on a whiteboard at the start of the planning session, what do people hate about doing business with lawyers and what can we do about it? There is probably a bit of hate around doing business with lawyers, not so much around puppy training, but it is a great question to ask. What what do people dislike about doing business with us and how can we how can we improve on that? That would be a good thing to do in your training session. In terms of top three episodes, Shelley, 
It's a really tough question. I think, listen to Ariana Sackville, who's got Dog and uh, Bell and Bone, a premium dog food brand. You'll probably get a little bit from that. But I think, honestly, any of the episodes that I've produced over the last 12 years may have some impact in some way, shape or form on that beautiful business of yours. So, Shelley, thank you uh, for making the time to leave me a message. Anyone else? Give us a buzz. 0480-015-150. And leave me a message. Tell me what you think. Just maybe a marketing idea, one marketing idea that's working for you that you want to share with the rest of the small business owning universe in Australia. Righto, that almost brings us to the end of your favourite marketing podcast. Be sure to grab a copy of my marketing book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. If you're loving the Small Business Big Marketing podcast, then you'll find 537 more episodes on the Podcast One Australia app. As has been the case for the past 12 years, the podcast is presented by me, Timbo Reed, and I think lovingly pulled together by the high-maintenance podcast-loving team over at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now.